Hello and welcome to My Daily Trivia. I'm your host, Danny, and today is Wednesday, August 16th, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. I want to once again apologize for the quality of my voice on yesterday's episode. I guess that's the uh, that's the risk you take when you do a daily podcast, is that not every day is going to be great, but it seems like my voice has bounced back, so it should be a little bit better today. Now, if this is your first time listening, I want to say welcome. My Daily Trivia is a 10-round quiz show with no specific themes, topics, or categories. As I mentioned, we do, however, have a new episode every day, Monday through Friday, with each day getting progressively harder. So today is, of course, Wednesday, which means today will be about middle of the road in terms of difficulty. As always, if you find this episode challenging, I encourage you to listen to our other episodes later this week as well. You never know, you might know an answer, and you might even surprise yourself and learn a little something. If, however, you find this episode to be a little too easy, well, I encourage you to check in tomorrow on Thursday and tomorrow again on Friday, uh, because we're going to be making it a little bit harder. So, without further delay, let's get into today's round of questions with question number one. Which celestial body is the largest moon in our solar system? And the largest moon is Ganymede. Ganymede, or Jupiter 3, is the largest and most massive natural satellite of Jupiter, as well as in the solar system, being a planetary mass moon. It is the largest solar system object without a hemisphere, despite being the only moon of the solar system with a magnetic field. Like Titan, it is larger than the planet Mercury, but has somewhat less surface gravity than Mercury, Io, or our moon. Ganymede is composed of approximately equal amounts of silicates, rock, and water. It is a fully differentiated body with an iron-rich liquid core and an internal ocean that may contain more water than all of Earth's oceans combined. Its surface is composed of two main types of terrain. Dark regions, saturated with impact craters and dated to 4 billion years ago, cover about a third of it. Lighter regions, cross-cut by extensive grooves and ridges, and only slightly less ancient, covers the remainder. Ganymede's discovery is credited to Simon Marius and Galileo Galilei, who both observed it in 1610 as the third of the Galilean moons, the first group of objects discovered orbiting another planet. Its name was soon suggested by astronomer Simon Marius, after the mythological Ganymede, a Trojan prince desired by Zeus, who is, of course, the Greek counterpart of Jupiter, who carried Ganymede off to be the cupbearer of the gods. So, once again, the largest moon in our solar system was Ganymede. Now, if you're looking for the second largest moon in the solar system, we actually covered that in yesterday's episode. I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. Moving on to question number two. What is the scientific term for the process by which an organism evolves and adapts to its environment over generations?
And the answer there is evolution. In biology, evolution is the change in heritable characteristics of biological populations over successive generations. Evolution occurs when evolutionary processes, such as natural selection, including sexual selection, and generic drift act on genetic variation, resulting in certain characteristics becoming more or less common within a population over successive generations. The process of evolution has given rise to biodiversity at every level of biological organization. The theory of evolution by natural selection was conceived independently as an explanation for why organisms are adapted to their physical and biological environments by Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace in the mid-19th century. The theory was first set out in detail in Darwin's book On the Origin of Species. Evolution by natural selection is established by observable facts about living organisms. Uh, one, more offspring are often produced than can possibly survive. Two, traits vary among individuals with respect to their morphology, physiology, and behavior. Three, different traits confer different rates of survival and reproduction. And four, traits can be passed from generation to generation. This is the heritability of fitness. In successive generations, members of a population are therefore more likely to be replaced by the offspring of parents with favorable characteristics for that environment. So, once again, this all is defined as evolution, which is the scientific term for the process by which an organism evolves to its environment. Moving on to question number three. Which U.S. state is known as the land of enchantment? And that U.S. state is New Mexico. The Land of Enchantment is the official nickname for the state of New Mexico. This name is a direct reference to the history and beauty of New Mexico, and was first used as the title of a book by Lillian Whitting in 1906. The book title caught on and was soon used to promote the state as a tourist destination. Land of Enchantment was officially adopted as the nickname of New Mexico in the year 1990. Uh, however, Land of, Land of Enchantment may be the official nickname. However, it is not the only nickname, as New Mexico has other recognized unofficial nicknames. For instance, the state is also called the Spanish State because it has a high percentage of people with Spanish heritage, and of course it shares a border with Mexico. Another nickname is the Sunshine State, which is in reference to the bright sunshine that the state experiences, although this particular nickname is also the nickname for the state of Florida. Finally, New Mexico is also called the Cactus State because of its large population of cacti. Now, I did just go recently watch Oppenheimer, which, of course, a lot of the Manhattan Project took place in New Mexico and I don't ever remember it being referred to as the land of enchantment during the nuclear tests. However, as of 1990, that is officially what it is called. That is, again, the state of New Mexico. Moving on to question number four. 
What famous playwright wrote the line, quote, Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, end quote, in one of his sonnets. And that, of course, was the great William Shakespeare. This line appears in Sonnet 116, which was first published in 1609. In Sonnet 116, Shakespeare presents love as an unchanging condition, a contract between two people that is not altered based on one's current situation. Quote, Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. End quote. Sonnet 116 is an English or Shakespearean sonnet. The English sonnet has three quatrains, followed by a final rhyming couplet. It follows the typical rhyming scheme of the form ABAB, CDCD, EFEFGG, and is composed in iambic pentameter, a typical poetic meter based on five pairs of metrically weak and strong syllabic positions. Sonnet 116 is one of Shakespeare's most famous love sonnets, but some scholars have argued that the theme has been misunderstood. Hilton Landry believes the appreciation of 116 as a celebration of true love is actually mistaken, in part because its context in the sequence of adjacent sonnets is not properly considered. Landry acknowledges the sonnet, quote, as the grandeur of general generality or a universal significance, but he cautions that, quote, however timeless and universal its implications may be, we must never forget that Sonnet 116 has a restricted or particular range of meaning simply because it does not stand alone, end quote. Regardless of the meaning of all of that, and despite the ambiguity at the ending of the sonnet itself, this has remained one of Shakespeare's most famous poems for over 400 years. So, once again, the famous playwright with the line, Love is not love which alters when an alteration finds, is of course William Shakespeare. I feel like in most trivia questions, when the question is regarding a playwright, it's always a safe bet to guess old Bill Shakespeare. Moving on to question number five. Which wine-producing region in France is famous for its Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot blends? And that region is known as Bordeaux. Bordeaux is a major center for business in France, as it, as it has the sixth largest metropolitan population. It serves as a major regional center for trade, administration, services, and industry. The vine was introduced to Bordeaux region by the Romans, probably in the mid-first century, to provide wine for local consumption, and wine production has been continuous in the region ever since. Bordeaux wine growing area has about 287,000 acres, that's about 116 hectares of vineyards, 
57 appellations, 10,000 wine-producing estates or chateaus, and 13,000 grape growers, with an annual production of approximately 960 million bottles the Bordeaux area produces large quantities of everyday wine, as well as some of the most expensive wines in the world. Both red and white wines are made in the Bordeaux region. Uh, now I'm going to pronounce some wines here. My wife is born and raised in France, and so I'm, sh so I'm sure she may be cringing at my pronunciation, but I'm going to give it a try. Red wines are generally made from a blend of grapes and may be made from... Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, and less commonly in recent years, Carmenere. White Verdot is made from Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, and, ooh, this is a tough one, Muscadelle. I think I may have gotten that right. She'll correct me later if I got it wrong. In any case, once again, that region is Bordeaux. So, moving on to question number six. Which iconic rock band released the album Dark Side of the Moon in 1973, which became one of the best-selling albums of all time? And that rock band was, of course, Pink Floyd. The Dark Side of the Moon is the eighth studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released on March 1, 1973, by Harvest Records in the UK and Capitol Records in the United States. Developed during live performances before recording began, it was conceived as a concept album that would focus on the pressures faced by the band during their arduous lifestyle and also deal with the mental health problems of former band member Sid Barrett, who departed the group in 1968. The record builds on ideas explored in Pink Floyd's earlier recordings and performances, while omitting the extended instrumentals that characterized the band's earlier work. The group employed multi-track recordings, tape loops, and analog synthesizers, including experimentation with the EMS VC3 and a Synthy A. The Dark Side of the Moon is centered around the idea of madness, exploring themes such as conflict, greed, time, death, and mental illness. Snippets from interviews with the band's road crew and others are featured alongside philosophical quotations. The sleeve, which depicts a prismatic spectrum, was designed by Storm Thorgerson in response to keyboardist Richard Wright's request for a, quote, simple and bold design, end quote, which would represent the band's lighting and album's themes. The Dark Side of the Moon is among the most critically acclaimed albums and often features in professional listings of the greatest of all time. It brought Pink Floyd international fame, wealth, and plaudits to all four band members blockbuster release of the album era. It also propelled record sales throughout the music industry during the 1970s. The Dark Side of the Moon is certified 14 times platinum in the United Kingdom and topped the U.S. Billboard top LPs and tape chart where it has charted for 981 weeks. As of 2013, 
The Dark Side of the Moon has sold over 45 million copies worldwide, making it the best-selling album of the 1970s and the fourth best-selling album in history. So once again, iconic rock band with the album Dark Side of the Moon was Pink Floyd. Moving on to question number seven. What fictional island serves as the setting for Jurassic Park franchise where dinosaurs are genetically resurrected and put on display for visitors? And that island was called Isla Nublar. Isla Nublar is a fictional Central American island that serves as a major setting in the first novel and its film adaptation, as well as the films Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. According to the novel, its name means Cloud Island in Spanish. The tropical island is located 120 miles, or about 190 kilometers, west of Costa Rica and has an inactive volcano. In the first novel and film, Isla Nublar is the location of Jurassic Park, a dinosaur-themed park proposed by InGen, but it fails to open after the animals escape. Uh, in the novel, the Costa Rican government declares the island unsafe and has it napalmed. In the film series, the island continues to exist until the Jurassic World trilogy. In the films, several Hawaiian islands Stood, at, stood in as Isla Nublar, including Oahu and Kauai. Some filming also took place on sound stages in California for the original film and in Louisiana for Jurassic World. So again, the name of that fictional island is Isla Nublar. Moving on to question number eight. Which technology company is known for producing products such as laptops, printers, and desktop computers with a name often abbreviated as HP? And that company is Hewlett Packard. The Hewlett-Packard Company, commonly shortened to Hewlett-Packard or simply HP, was an American multinational information technology company headquartered in Palo Alto, California. HP developed and provided a wide variety of hardware components as well as software and related services to consumers, small and medium-sized businesses, and large enterprises, including customers in the government, health, and education sectors. The company was founded in a one-car garage in Palo Alto by Bill Hewlett and David Packard in 1939 and initially produced a line of electronic test and measurement equipment. The HP garage at 376 Addison Avenue is now designated as an official California historical landmark and is marked with the plaque calling it, quote, the birthplace of Silicon Valley, end quote. So again, with the name HP, that is Hewlett Packard Company. Moving on to question number nine. In what year did the United States try to switch to the metric system? Uh, here's a spoiler alert, it did not work.
and that year was 1975. The Metric Conversion Act of 1975 is an act of Congress that was signed into law by U.S. President Gerald Ford on December 23, 1975. It declared the metric system, quote, the preferred system of weights and measures for the United States trade and commerce, end quote, but permitted the use of the United States customary units in all activities. As Ford's statement on the signing of the act emphasizes, all conversions were to be completely voluntarily. The act also established the United States Metric Board with representatives from scientific, technical, and educational institutions as well as state and local governments to plan, coordinate, and educate the U.S. people for the metrication of the United States. The metric board was abolished in 1982 by President Ronald Reagan, largely on the suggestion of Frank Makowitz and Lynn Novziger. Execution of Order 12770 was signed by President George H.W. Bush on July 25, 1991, directing departments and agencies within the executive branch of the United States government to take all appropriate measures within their authority to use the metric system. So, for example, the U.S. military uses the metric system ever since 1991. But the United States as a country tried to switch in 1975. Now, of course, that did not work, much to the chagrin of our international friends, uh, as I mentioned, my wife is born and raised in France, and it drives her absolutely crazy. But uh, in any case, maybe someday. So moving on to question number 10, our final question of today. What is the national flower of Japan? And the national flower of Japan is a cherry blossom. A cherry blossom, also known as a Japanese cherry or sakura, is a flower of trees in the genus Prunus or the Prunus subgenus Cerus. Wild species of the cherry tree are widely distributed, mainly in, in the northern hemisphere. They are common in East Asia, especially in Japan. They generally refer to the or ornamental cherry trees not the cherry trees grown for their fruit. In Europe, from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, Collingwood Ingram collected and studied Japanese cherry blossoms and created various ornament cultivars. The culture of ornamental cherry blossoms soon began to spread. In the United States, ornamental cherry blossoms began to spread after Japan presented them as a token of friendship in 1912. Cherry blossoms have been described as having a beautiful smell and have been the inspiration for many candles and incenses. So that will conclude this round of My Daily Trivia. If you found this round to be easy, I encourage you to check in tomorrow. We're going to make it a little bit more difficult. If you found it hard, I encourage you to check in anyway. You never know, you might surprise yourself knowing some answers. And even if you don't, you might learn as well. Now my voice is back. It sounded a little bit better today. So again, I thank you for your patience yesterday, and I encourage you to tell your friends, tell your families about our show. We're always trying to grow the community here at My Daily Trivia. I want to thank each of you again for listening to My Daily Trivia. Once again, I'm your host, Danny, and I will see you tomorrow. <laughs>